Hello. Welcome to the Community Pulse. Developer experience has been a buzzword for the past few years. It's only growing in popularity. But what is it exactly? And how is it different from developer relations or developer advocacy? Also, when we say developer experience, is everyone actually referring to the same thing? Or are there multiple approaches? Let's find out. You're listening to the Community Pulse Podcast. Welcome your host, Mary Thangval, Jason Hand, PJ Haggerty, and Wesley Faulkner. Thank you for that intro, PJ. Uh, to give us some insight of what DX is and how it's done, please welcome Kurt Kimple of Foresight, Fortright, uh, and Amar Graham of Kamunda. Kurt, can you give us a little bit, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? Hey, yeah, thanks so much for having me. Uh, Kurt Kempel, uh, as you mentioned, uh, with Forthright. So that's essentially a company where I help other companies, uh, actually teams and and like individuals with uh, essentially creating better developer experiences. I've really made it my goal, especially over the last year, to really uh, focus on developer experience and what that looks like for different companies and how they can go about strategically uh, you know, tackling that problem. That's awesome. Uh, Amara? Hi, my name is Amara Graham. I'm the head of developer experience at Komunda, and my team owns documentation and late breaking news, at least of recording this, this podcast. Um, we're also going to own the, the SDKs moving forward for uh, working with our, our cloud product. So very exciting. Fantastic. Well, thanks to both of you for joining us today. Um, we're going to start with a very broad question of what is developer experience? Uh, yeah. if, if it's okay if I jump in here. Yeah, I love this question. Uh, so for me, um, you know, I really wanted to like, we, we hear the term developer experience a lot. And for, I think, you know, over the last half decade or so, a lot of times that focus has been internal and like, what is the developer experience like for engineering teams uh, within technologically uh, you know, savvy companies and how do we improve that experience that we're able to continue to grow scale organizations and, and be as productive as possible. As we've started to have this emergence of dev tool companies or developer adjacent companies, you know, it's become a situation where we have to think about the developer experience externally and what it looks like for developers to integrate with with us, right? Like as those companies that, that are working with them. So, you know, I really wanted to, to kind of, you know, zero in on, I, I feel like our industry, um, DevRel, DevX, all of that, we can learn a lot from other industries or, or departments, orgs that have come before us. So I started pulling and thinking about like the emergence of user experience and how that came to be about. Uh, and so I got really caught up in the work of someone, Don Norman, named Don Norman, who was like one of the founding UX folks at Apple, created the first user experience teams there. Uh, and one thing that really stood out to me, they said, was, uh, you know, while people were very much focused on how the product was, they were focused on what the experience around the product was. And like that, to me, kind of surmises what is developer experience. It's not so much how developers work with the individual pieces of your system. It's how developers experience your platform or ecosystem as a whole. And so what I really like to say is developer experience is like any event or occurrence that happens within your ecosystem that leaves an impression on a developer. 
you know, that creates kind of a wide umbrella. But to me, that's really what we're talking about. At its simplest term, DX is the the resolution of friction or removal of, of friction from developers. Uh, workflows, I think, is a really great way to think about it. And we do that through all kinds of amazing ways. Documentation, SDKs, content, feedback, the list goes uh, on and on. But for me, you know, that's what really developer experience is about. It's about thinking holistically about how developers will have to interact and move throughout your ecosystem and platform and optimizing those journeys. Amara, do you agree, <laughs> disagree? Do you have anything I, to add? I agree with everything up and and including some of the the terms that Kurt was using which is is fantastic to hear because as PJ was was introducing the the topic and the the podcast I was thinking you know this there are a number of conversations about internal developer experience and you know devops and infrastructure teams and and we both sit on like the external side so for me again, to kind of echo what Kurt was saying, developer experience is to developers as user experience is to users. So it's really about the the journey, the ecosystem, removing some of that, that friction, like he was saying, um, and how do you make it a cohesive experience? Because there's plenty of times where I, as a developer myself, have run into something where you know, the API works one way, the SDK works another, but the SDK is supposed to be leveraging the API. What? Who who did this? Why is it it's so disjointed? Um, so that's kind of the the angle that I look at it. And then sometimes that's very confusing for people, which I'm always very surprised about until I remember back to you know my experience building UIs and and working more with UX that people were confused about that. Um, so maybe it shouldn't be terribly surprising. But really, it's around developer enablement. Do developers have the tools that they need to work efficiently, successfully, productively with your tools or your product? Cool. And I, I think it's interesting because you both you both talked about you both mentioned internal DevRel and internal developer experience and the the concept of that versus user experience. Um, and in some ways, like you know, there's a question: you know, is there a difference between DevRel? and dev advocacy and developer experience? Is it just a name? Is it fine tuning a similar thing? Is it putting a new shiny on the thing that we've already been doing? Like what are, you know, when it comes to it, what are the skills and, and responsibilities? Like where does the differences, where do the differences lie? Um, and I mean, I know in my mind, like a lot of what we're describing is like DevRel strictly for developers. And I know that DevRel is kind of like, to me, it's an umbrella term that also includes like community management of users or contributors, which may or may not be developers. There's lots of people under that, but dev experience is like, no, this is just for the developers, just for the database folks, just for the DevOps folks, the ones who are really doing the job inside of these companies. And maybe they're just doing it as a job instead of as a community. Um, I think I've gone on long enough, but yeah. So like, what is the difference there between DevRel, Dev Advocacy and Dev Experience? I guess I can can take a stab at this. Um, so kind of leaning into to what I, I mentioned before about the the enablement focus for for developer experience, I tend to look at it and say developer relations is kind of that umbrella that captures more than enablement. They're going to capture awareness, engagement. Not to say that the developer experience team or or individuals who are focused on enablement won't kind of bleed into some of those areas as well. Um, but that's how I 
kind of structure it in my head, I guess, org wise. But I know that there's plenty of examples where it goes the other way and you have developer experience as kind of the overarching or umbrella org and then developer relations underneath. I don't have experience with that, so I can't really talk much about it. I don't know if, if Kurt, maybe you have something to say there, um, but that's, again, kind of the the approach that I take. They are different. I think there is a, a Venn diagram. It's not two circles. There's definitely some overlap there. Um, but I think it depends on the community. It depends on the team. It depends on the skills of the individuals that are on those teams. And for my developer experience team, we've got documentation and, and dev tools, SDKs. So we lean a little bit more heavy towards you know, technical writing. And that's different than writing a blog. We lean more yeah. towards um, some of those development skills because we're going to maintain SDKs. So we need to have people who are not just good at development, but good at, at writing code for other people or to be used by other people. And I mean, there's some nuances there, but it's a slightly different, different skill set. Uh, yeah, I think, <clears throat> I think you brought up an extremely good point, which is that you'll see the org structure of either one. Uh, DevRel has like a DX type of function or uh, DX has a DevRel function. I think it's just because for like, right now, lack of a better um, term, what really matters is that Venn diagram. It's the, it's the like, you know, DX, DevRel, what you want to call it is a very uh, horizontal function. It's not vertical. And so what matters is that you have the coverage of the scale to accommodate an entire ecosystem or platform, right? And it makes sense to break things up uh, you know, like Conway's Law, or even just by the way it is. So developer relations is focused more on the second, you know, half of that word, relationships, right? Like, uh, whereas developer experience is going to be focused more specifically on the actual, in, uh, like, you know, fine-tuned kind of flow the developers have through the system. Does that make sense? So it really doesn't matter what structure you have as long as what you have is working for you and you're doing both of those things. So what you're saying is it would have been easier if we could have just called ourselves experience engineers and relations engineers and not adding the word developer because that that just confuses everyone. Yeah. And I think, you know, uh, it's just really pick what term works best for you as far as what we want to call the encompassing org, right? Or department, the function that makes up what we do. But I think once you scale to a big enough uh, uh, place, you need these kind of different responsibilities covered, right? And that means you need to have those uh, competencies on your team and you want to group those logically in ways where they can be productive, work together and where it makes sense, right? So, you know, do that how it makes sense for you from a business standpoint, but just make sure you're covering both those use cases. Yeah, and I love that point, right? That like, as the company scales, as the team scales, as the user base scales, that's going to change what that looks like, right? So it's not always going to be the single dev advocate trying to figure everything out. There's going to be a team that builds around that. There's going to be a strategy that builds, or at least hopefully a strategy that builds around that, right? Like yep. what, what someone is doing at a 3,000 person company is going to look very different than what you're doing at a 15 person company. But you can kind of use that as a roadmap of how do I get from a to B and, and figure out what you need along the way. Yeah. 
Wesley, I think you, I saw you starting yes. to say something. I was curious about what, like to build off of what, what Kurt was saying about all these different points and uh, the way the business is constructed. Like, how do you start? Because there's so many touch points with a developer when they come to you and your company or want to use your service or whatever. How do you break yeah. that, that apart? How do you start evaluating what are some of the, the most high priority parts, especially when we're talking about like not necessarily something that's directly tied to sales where you, ha you have to make sure this works or engineering. How do you, um, what rubric do you use to kind of like evaluate the, the priority and also the importance of each of these different parts? Yeah, I, I, so, oh, I'm sorry, actually, Amar, did you want to take this? I didn't mean to jump in so fast, but I've been thinking all about this a lot, like over the last year. So I just go uh, for it. Okay. Uh, some of like the quicker things that I like to kind of know or, or measure to understand, right. To keep it kind of high level is, and again, this touches on, we're not very different from like a lot of other departments who are trying to accomplish very similar goals. And we can do a lot of the things that they're doing. So when I'm thinking of developer experience, I'm thinking of friction reduction. Uh, and I'm, I'm thinking of uh, not just that, because it's not just negative experiences, but we want to focus on positive as well. So I'm trying to think of like aha moments. So things for me that I'm looking for are like conversion rate optimization. How is the onboarding? So for me, touch points that are very important is number one is the onboarding process. So anything that touches that along the way uh, is going to be prioritized uh, for me from like a developer experience perspective. Then I'm going to start thinking about, okay, we've improved the experience of getting people in now let's focus on the experience they have when they're there, right? So now I'm thinking of time to aha, right? Like how do what is how do we get people as fast as possible from I'm in the system to I've just done something that was really cool and I want to tell somebody about it. I don't even care who, but someone's got to know what I just did. That was awesome, right? Like that's what we want people to have that aha moment. Um, you know, I I've said this a lot. It's like for me the difference uh, is that you know we're not dealing with like consumers of our products, you know, uh, and this is like the UX DX thing. We're dealing with integrators of our products and like the way to get uh, that long-term, I like to say, you know, what we're focused on again, using metrics and, and terminology, other departments understand where we see really good uh, uh, return on our work is in long-term self-serve ARR getting, getting the, the, the product and the tools integrated in, to developers' workflows. They're sharing it with people and it becomes so ingrained in what they do that when it comes time to hit the pay button because they've gone past the free plan, there's no question. You're already such an integral part of their workflow that, that they just, you know, there's no, no uh, reason uh, not to hit pay, right? You've removed all that friction. So to me, those are kind of the things that I'm really thinking about. Matches up really good with like product-led growth strategies as well. Uh, you can work very closely with the product team to really kind of uh, uh, figure that out. Growth teams as well. Something I don't really see or hear a lot about um, in our industry and something I've been working on over the last year specifically is like, what is the impact that DX and DevRel can have on growth teams? Uh, you know, if we see more uh, collaboration and even developer advocates, community managers and such having roles on the growth team, I think would be really interesting. And it seems like like really linear against the the developer journey with the product and their and how they go through it. Um, exactly. And I would love to hear Amar. Like, do you agree? Do you ever move to the squeaky wheel gets the grease kind of philosophy when you're trying to figure out where the problems are? How do you tackle 
trying to unwind where you um, kind of prioritize your work. Yeah, I, I largely agree. And I think the the point that I'll add to kind of emphasize that agreement is with, with product-led growth or, or PLG, uh, learning about it for the first time, I was like, this is, this is developer experience really embodied. Like if we do developer experience well, we are, we are winning at PLG. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's been very interesting learning about PLG and, and watching the, the industry kind of adopt that and saying, well, this feels obvious to me. Why doesn't it feel obvious to other people? Um, so specifically with developer experience, I kind of lean on three fundamental questions. One is, are, are developers getting what they need? And then are they getting what they need efficiently? And then could we optimize the efficiency? Those are not three things that you're going to be able to run through in a week, a month, a quarter, whatever it may be. Um, But those are the focus areas. And you can kind of look at it in an agile sense where you can put it in a circle and kind of go back and reflect as, you know, the product is growing or the community is growing. Do you need to go back and revisit those questions and going back and revisiting them in kind of that cyclic order makes you or kind of forces you to rethink, you know, is our our developer experiencing working for us now? Are there choices that we made previously that we need to revisit? And you, you again, kind of adopt that PLG or that, that growth approach along with the rest of the organization. And it fits very well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, I'd like to follow up on what you said. You brought up uh, another really great point too, though. It's like, you know, when you get that really tight integration and if you can kind of like solidify that that feedback cycle um, as like a workflow where you work closely with product, I've been using a process a lot really called like DX audits or friction logging is a big part of that you might be familiar with as well. But, you know, um, the what I'm getting at here is aside from just focusing specifically on things like onboarding, you can use processes like DX audits, much like with a growth mindset to like confirm hypothesis. You're hearing from people in the community about issues that they're having, things they might struggle with. You can sit down as that developer, go through that journey, friction log that, and now you're building up like a database of this feedback and product teams can integrate that at the right time for them. One of the biggest issues I see on the DX side with like product feedback is that it tends to be ephemeral. In other words, we'll deliver it or might deliver it at like, you know, particular status meetings, but product teams, they're working in sprint cycles. They've got quarterly plans, you know, roadmaps and backlogs and and, and so we need to, uh, you know, adapt to that and have systems in place that allow them to pull our feedback in when they need it. Right. Um, so, you know, just find ways to standardize on that for whatever that is for you and your product teams will love you and you'll get a, a, a lot of uh, just really fast feedback loops and you'll be able to have high impact, very noticeable high impact. So speaking of that high impact one of the questions that always comes up in any conversation about developer relations really um, is metrics. So I'd does love it, to hear. Does, does it, I mean, I thought we solved this like six episodes ago. Absolutely. Metrics, Absolutely. who needs them? <laughs> but I'd, I'd love to hear from both of you just some ideas around how do you actually measure success in developer experience? How do you know that you're having a concrete impact? Are there specific KPIs, success metrics, things that you're looking at on a regular basis? 
Can I start with this? Because I think ah, go, go. It, it, it's not my controversial take of the, the podcast, although maybe it is. <laughs> Kurt, I think it was, it might've been you and maybe you can help me here where I think, again, I think you said like try to get your own metrics and don't yes. like adopt and use other people's. Yes. Yep. I kind of disagree. Yeah. Um, I I really like leaning into the the product metrics. And part of that is because, again, if you're in a position where your DX team owns or heavily influences APIs, SDKs, other dev tools, if you're creating and maintaining those as part of the experience, you want to see those numbers go up. It should be easier yeah. for people to use the product if they have those those tools available to them. That said, there are other things that I want to watch for and help other parts of the company understand. So if we do see friction or we do see something with a new feature and we want to gather sentiment or we want to understand how people are using it without asking them directly, can we see search terms in the docs? Can we see search terms on like a Google search? If we see a number of people are looking into a particular aspect or feature of the product, can we then go out to community forums or Slack or Discord or Discourse, whatever you may be using? What are the conversations that are happening there? And can you tie them into what's happening in those other places and spaces? So again, to me, leaning into the, the product metrics makes a lot of sense because I can validate is that tool, that product adjacent thing working to help the product? And then can I gather metrics based on what that product adjacent tool is actually doing and inform our growth within developer experience. But yeah. again, leaning heavily into the product side. Absolutely. I, so it's funny, we're not in disagreement here. Uh, we, we actually do agree. Um, but I, I would say that like what you're doing is building that, that relationship between the usage metrics of the tools that you're taking care of and building trust with products so that they understand increased usage of this is driving MAUs, right? Like MAUs is a lagging indicator. You need leading indicators that you can work off personally um, to build and strategize off of. And those are the metrics that you're getting from like the things uh, that you're building, right? And the work that you're doing. I agree with you, but I think that, um, you know, and it is your success when MAUs go up. Uh, but I do think that like, if you, you know, using MAUs, it's just because it's lagging. There's so many things that feed into it. It can be very difficult uh, to to say, hey, we're having a big impact because overall, overall, comparatively, the slice is a lot smaller than it is from other places. That's OK. Uh, the more ingrained you get with product and this is not true for every org, nothing is absolute. And so where there is a really good, it sounds like at uh, uh, Commanda, there's really good collaboration and integration between product and DX. So you have that. So you can use MAUs. That trust is there. I find that like it really depends on whether or not people trust the the work you're doing and if you can draw that connection between it and like whoever is owning those larger company-wide lagging metrics understands like the impact that you're having at the the you know uh uh leading uh, end of things if that makes sense 
Yeah, I think it's interesting. This is kind of where you know I had a question that came up because it seems like for the the first time when it comes to metrics, there's lots of tools out there for the general dev advocacy or community manager kind of position. You know, your 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 uh, common rooms and your your orbits where they can easily see that, so they don't have to necessarily borrow. Or I shouldn't say they shouldn't. They don't have to take, but they can borrow from product or borrow from marketing. And say this is we're shaping our own metrics around these ideals. But um, even you know with things like Paradis, which is more geared towards developer experience, is there really a tool to specifically measure things where we can say, oh, we can break away from these other metrics um, because they you know some of them apply, but some of them don't apply. Here's our metrics, our developer community centered metrics. Uh, do you think there's tools out there right now that serve that purpose? Or are we oh. still kind of piecing together homemade things? Uh, I, I'm sorry. Uh, Amar, did you want to take this first? Go for it. <laughs> uh, I think outside of community, there is still a lot of work that needs to be done. Uh, we're starting to see more tools pop up to specifically uh, handle things like uh, content and measuring around your content production distribution and things like that. I would say really what saved us the most um, because we don't have a lot of these like SaaS platforms that are really uh, provide what we need is we're now in the era where we have the SaaS platforms where we can build what we need, your notions, your air tables, your things like that. I rely really heavily on uh, these more like open um, uh, spreadsheet, you know, database type applications to help us build what we need, like a database of collaborators. So we know who we've worked with in the community and their info, a content database, a database with all of the feedback from friction logs, from like audits and stuff like that, right? Like there's no tool that does all of that for you. Uh, and I've honestly been getting really deep into uh, business analytics because when it comes to like measurements and tools, like I find that I'm like building a lot of my own infrastructure uh, to properly manage it. It's either too hard to get those resources from companies because they're all tied up, right? Um, or they don't even have it available. Uh, but, you know, for us, we have to pull metrics from generally so many places to get a complete picture. So, yeah. So to, to sum that up, Kurt Kempel, the spreadsheet, number one device ever created by humans. Uh, Facts. I mean, sorry, I, sorry, I, I know. had some thoughts, yeah. but it's up there with like fire and the wheel, you know, I know we didn't invent yeah. fire, but using it for, for things is for nice. cooking. Yeah. yeah. Like he's walking that fine line. He's like, please don't turn this into a sound bite. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think for me, again, leaning back into the, the product metrics and, and having a, a conversation around that. So tools like mix panel, but what I want to be really careful about, and I don't want people to think like, oh, I'm just adopting products metrics. It's not entirely true. I'm using their tools and then creating kind of my own reports and my own dashboards and focusing on the things that I think will inform our work or how we talk to other people around the company about our work. So they may have some interest on the, the product side or product management side in People are viewing the documentation. What you know, guides are they looking into? Are they can we determine if they are successful with those? I'm more interested in trying to see at what point do we need to shift gears and move from beginner guides to intermediate and advanced guides because our community has advanced forward and they need to have that deep knowledge and deep expertise while still having their hand held into the the next step or the next journey of the product. 
Um, some of that is heavily influenced by the fact that our, our cloud-based product is still quite new. So our community is, is evolving and we have a lot of, of newcomers. So beginner content is where we need to sit. But what I'm looking for through these product metrics is when are people using the more advanced features? Are they getting stuck? Are they needing some of that assistance? And then do we need to say, you know, hey, we're always going to have newcomers. We're always going to have beginners. But for our intermediate and advanced audience, these are the topics that they're interested in and line up who can create those guides. Let the rest of the DevRel team know that we have intermediate and advanced content coming through the pipeline. How can they adjust what they're doing? And everyone kind of understands that we've we've matured as the, the community or as the product. That is amazing. Really great content. And yeah. as this podcast matures, um, we have to close it out and move over into checkouts. Now, checkouts is where we share links or information that we've saw that caught our eye over the past few weeks. Uh, it doesn't have to be DevRel or community related. It could just be anything. And so let's start off with checkouts with yours, Mary. Sure. So I've got two different things this week, one that is work-related and one that is not. Um, my work-related one is the 135 rule, which I actually first heard about from Matt Broberg years ago at this point. Um, and it's this idea that in order to really stay productive and focused on the tasks that you need to get done every day, you set up a system of one major task, three medium-sized tasks, and five small tasks. And then that's kind of the order that you progress through things as well, right? What's the, the one big thing that I have to make sure that I accomplish today? What are the three things that might take a little bit more time that I really should get done today? And what are the five things that, you know, it might be send a Slack message to this person, follow up on this email, but they're ideally quick things that you can do in between meetings um, and still accomplish them. And that's been really helpful for me lately, especially as I'm, I'm working through a lot of different projects and context switching a lot to be able to come back to like, okay, what's the, the major thing I have to prioritize for today? What are the other things that I'd like to get done and how much time should I expect to spend on each of those? Uh, the non-work related thing is an amazing TV show that I actually was told about years ago uh, by Danielle Andrist, uh, and PJ is nodding as well. So I'm guessing PJ told me about it too. Um, but I had put off watching it and I recently did a, a trip to Berlin to work from our offices and, and downloaded a bunch of these episodes from Netflix to watch on my way over there. And on the trip over there, made it through all of season one. While I was in Berlin, made it through season two. And season three released while I was in Berlin, which was amazing tiny because then I downloaded season three on Netflix to watch on my flight home. And I have, I think, two episodes left. Uh, it is fantastic. It is great humor and lighthearted, easy to follow storylines, um, but just brilliant storytelling. The characters are fantastic. So if you're looking for something to watch that's not a... I have to be really dedicated to this thing that's happening. Uh, it's a great show to kind of lose yourself in and, and enjoy over a span of a few days or weeks. Mary, you never yeah. said the name of the show. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> it is called Dairy Girls. <laughs> 
thanks for thanks for keeping me honest, PJ. Uh, dairy as in the place, so D E R R Y, Dairy Girls. I was I thought it was like this is the you're like building suspense. Like, it was it was like a trailer. It was like yeah. wow. <laughs> When's she gonna say it? Oh my god. Oh my god. It's like oh shit. She's wrapping up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think she knows she didn't say the name of the show. No. Yeah. Appreciate so. it. <laughs> I I I also have uh, two checkouts. I didn't only had one before we started, but I was talking thinking about TV shows that my family and I are loving, and so I'll talk about that and more teaser at the end. Um, so. Uh, first, I just published, uh, or it was just published by Devrel X uh, on their blog, uh, setting up for success in your next role, and and like how to actually vet uh, your role from the job description phase to the recruiter phase to the interview phase, all the way down to the offer phase to help really break that down. And it is kind of like a, a list of things I wish I would have known through all of my journeys of just getting into the wrong role, like a bait and switch or just not being set up for success because you have no resources. So this will help getting get you through those things to one, figure out what you're dealing with and two, figuring out if they know what the hell they're doing. Like, I think there's almost an assumption that if you're hiring someone for a role that you know how to find the right person and um, that that's just just not always the case. And so uh, have a blog post, I have a lot of things there. So if you're looking for a new job, uh, I highly recommend that you at least peruse that to see if you can glean anything that you might not have known otherwise. And, uh, and on my TV watching front, uh, my family and I are walking watching a uh, Lego Masters. They're in season three. It's on Fox, but we watch it on Hulu. Uh, they're still releasing new shows um, once a week or so um, to build up. And it is just fun. Will Arnett is the host, and uh, it's very corny funny, which is kind of like my brand of humor. Uh, it's very creative, and it's just astonishing uh, the, the, the things that people do when they're just given a prompt uh, and just given uh, raw materials. And if that's not DevRel, I don't know what is. <laughs> so uh, I, 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 if you haven't heard of Lego Masters, I mean, start from season one and just build all the way up. Uh, so those are mine. Uh, I know one is a little self-serving, but hopefully it helps other other people. Um, Amara, what are your checkouts? Yeah. So the first one that I'll share is one that um, my developer experience engineer, uh, Steve Hicks, pointed out, which was GitHub or GitHub flavored markdown added highlights or what I've been more familiar with or the terminology that I've adopted is admonitions, which I think is what Docusaurus and maybe Docusaurus alone calls them. Um, But it's basically like a block quote that has some fancy or additional formatting that highlights, eh, I understand the name, um, a aspect within the markdown. um, And people have big feelings about it which I, I feel for the, the GitHub team on the, the product side, every time they're going to introduce something, they're going to face just chaos. Um, so you can go and read through that, what people love, what people hate. Um, but for me, I'm like, oh, this, this is interesting. This is cool. Um, on the non-work side, um, I guess if you're watching the video, uh, I really like Holo Taco nail polish. Um, and... They make great stuff. It's thick polish. It's uh, typically like holographic, which is where the hollow, H-O-L-O comes from. 
Um, but it was my pandemic hobby to kind of get into like truly painting my nails and I've, I've kept it up. So I'm, I'm rocking some Halloween kind of themed orange or Tic Tac orange and um, a, a nice Halloweeny purple. Um, and what you can't see and what I can't demonstrate on, on this video is there's also a um, glow in the dark top coat on two of my nails, which startles me every time I turn off the light to go to bed because they're like supercharged and I'm like, oh, what is that on my hands? It's uh, it's hollow or glow in the dark polish. Amazing. Uh, I will plus one that for Hello Taco. Amara got me hooked on it, got other people on our team hooked on it, other people online. But it's the thing for me is that it's self-leveling nail polish, which I had never heard of and was never aware of. But if you're someone who has ever struggled with like, I'm terrible with applying nail polish, I can't do it to save my life. See also how I have been in past lives. Um, it, it doesn't like it fills things in and levels itself and keeps you from making a huge mess and actually looks really good when you're done. So huge plus one for Hala Taco. Yeah. And use the offer code to get 15% off. <laughs> I, I want an offer code so bad because I am, I, I am the person in DevRel that's pushing this and people are like, oh, but it's good. Do you, do you have a code? I'm like, no. Yeah. I wish you did because I'm already sold. I'm going to be getting some. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we, might, we might have to see if they still have, they right. had a like, uh, if a friend uses this link, the, they get $5 off right. and you get $5 off thing. We'll have to see if that's right. still active. And if it is, we'll link right. it in the show notes. Yeah. And Community Pulse point. is accepting sponsorships too. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not wrong. Kurt, what are your, what are your closeouts? Uh, I've got one closeout today. It's non-work related. It's just something I've been obsessed with lately. It's a game I've been playing, Star Citizen. Um, so it is like a space kind of opera game. I don't really know how to explain it, but uh, you can fly ships. You can do like these fun like ground missions. You can do deliveries or be like a trader. There's all kind of fun stuff. Uh, but it's really like a space like MMORPG, but it's in alpha. It's like very buggy, uh, but it's a super immersive game. Like when you log in, that's it. There's no more loading screens. Like you walk through the city, you get your ship, you walk onto your ship, you fly into space, fly to like other moons and planets and land and no loading screen the whole time. Uh, so I just love it. A real fun flight model. I've even bought like uh, joysticks and stuff like that. Not going to lie, like super into it. Uh, but yeah, I've just been really loving it. Like flying around in a spaceship has been, it's like a game I've wanted since I was like a kid. So I'm just real excited to see it being built. It, is that PC only? Uh, it is PC only. It is PC only. And there's a lot of controversy around this game. It's actually a, uh, it was a Kickstarter like in 2012. Oh. It's like the, one of the only games that's like, uh, you know, hopefully going to actually come to like this level of, of fruition. They've raised over $500 million just from like, wow. yeah, just, just from fundraising, like no, no, like, yeah, backing. They do sell like ships. You can like buy the ships to use in game and stuff like that. NFT. Uh, or you can earn them. No, God. No, okay. Wesley. Right, no, dear Lord, no. <laughs> no, you actually fly it. It has a use in game. And uh, no, you can earn them in game as well. Um, but you could buy them if you don't want to earn them, you know, play to advance or pay to advance, I guess. But yeah, but it's a lot of fun. Um, I really enjoy it. But it is an alpha, it's super buggy. So if you play it, don't get upset, you know, when uh, <laughs> the game crashes every once in a while. <laughs> All right, let's move over to the PJ. I said, 
closeouts, but I meant checkouts, but maybe it's that's kind of totally okay. So, so Kofi, it's okay. Kofi, yeah. yeah. Uh, so this is the closeout checkout. Um, so first of all, since, since Kurt brought up the whole idea of having tons and tons of money to throw at something, <laughs> if you haven't watched it, Lord of the Rings rings of power is mm. absolutely stunning. I know that there was a lot of people who are kind of hating on it because it's not based on the Silmarillion and it's not based on Lord of the Rings. And it's not based on the Hobbit. It's on a book that Tolkien wrote with his son that fits in the middle. So get over yourselves and enjoy, which it for me, uh, I think it was eight or nine episodes. They were emotional. There was so much tie into understanding of the world and building this world. Absolutely stunning visually, absolutely stunning uh, with writing and character development, great, 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 great show. Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power. Um, I don't, I know, I don't generally advocate for Jeff Bezos getting more money, but like he kind of deserves it on this one. Um, the other thing is, it being autumn is kind of that time where you want to hear super upsetting and depressing music. So, I've been listening to the album Brave Faces by Spanish Love Songs. They are not Spanish love songs. That's just the name of the band. Uh, but they recently re-released the album. Uh, it was, I think, originally done in 2012. Uh, and they re-released it on a beautiful mint green vinyl through through uh, their record company. You should check it out. It's very sad. I will warn you, there are a lot of emotions you will have. I know people that listen to this album and cry every morning. Because it's autumn and that's what you're supposed to do musically when autumn arrives. Um, but with that... I would like to say very much thanks to Kurt. Thanks to Amara for joining us today to talk about developer experience. Uh, thanks as always to my hosts, Wesley and Mary for hanging out and coming up with the ideas for this awesome podcast. And of course, listener, thanks to you because without you, we would have no reason to do this. We are always happy to take your feedback, whether that be through Apple podcasts or Google play to let us know how we're doing. Tell us about things that you want to hear about or guests that you would like to suggest. Feel free to email us at info at communitypulse.io or hit us up on Twitter at community underscore pulse. That said, I always like to end with a quote. I think it's very relevant because we work with people all the time. And so I picked this quote from Greg Graffin, who's well known as the lead singer of Bad Religion. And he said, whether you reach a lot of people or you have a profound impact on a few people, their memories of you are your afterlife. With that, Thank you very much, and we will see you on the next episode of Community Pulse. You've been listening to the Community Pulse. Find out more at communitypulse.io, on Twitter at community underscore pulse, or anywhere you get your favorite podcast. If you've enjoyed this podcast, check out our extra podcast, The After Pulse. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Community